0: I have enjoyed our our journey together in in the book of the Revelation. You notice I'm kind of pedantic about always saying that, the Revelation. This is the unveiling, the showing, the revealing of Jesus in all of his glory, in his coming, in his salvation and also judgment. Now, because Revelation can be a complex book and it's not always in time sequence. It's not, it doesn't always unfold chronologically. I remember when I was young, really young in the faith, there were some churches that you would go to, and they would have this curtain. They must have spent a lot of time teaching through Revelation because they had this shower rod thing, and they had this curtain that they could pull out, and right across the stage, I wish we had one, we could pull out this curtain and paint it on the shower curtain was a chart through the book of Revelation. Like I said, they must have done this a lot. I don't know. We haven't haven't spent that much time, so maybe we don't need a shower curtain Revelation chart. But I gave you one in your bulletin notes instead. Because it's helpful just now and again to get a marker of where are we. I want to put this up on the screen. Last, Last week especially, we were in chapter 12, and chapter 12 was weird because it jumps all over in time. Up till then we've got generally a time sequence especially we had the we had the sealed judgment you had this way back in the first century these letters to these churches that we also can learn from and then you have that scene in heaven where judgment is going to start because the lamb takes the scroll and he begins to open its seals. And those sealed judgments unfold and the last seal opens up the seven trumpets. And so you continue in a chronological sequence. But there's a couple of interruptions just to remind us, oh, there's something bigger going on here. Now that really happens in chapter 12. In chapter 12, at the, at the, after the sixth trumpet judgment, before the seventh trumpet sounds, because the seventh trumpet is going to initiate the final judgments of the book of Revelations. These are the big ones. These are the worst ones. I mean, the others have been big, but that's, this is the final culmination. In the other judgments, there has always been the opportunity to believe. The opportunity to turn from one's rebellion and to, to believe in God's Savior, Jesus if God is shaking the earth and, and, and telling them, urging them, this is your last opportunity. When the bold judgments come, that opportunity will be ended. And so the, uh, the, the bold judgments on this chart occur at Revelation 16. So we've paused in our working through the trumpet judgments, waiting for the seventh trumpet, and there's this four or five-chapter interlude, four chapters, 12, 13, 14, 15, And we're being reminded of bigger picture events. So so chapter 12, we went all the way back to the incarnation. And even prior to that, where that dragon, Satan, is seeking to devour this child that is promised to be born. And so he goes after Israel. In fact, he tries to destroy Israel even before the child comes. He tries to destroy the child when it comes. And then after those, that, that early scene in Revelation 12, then we jump to the second half of the book. Well, first of all, we, we jump right to the middle. In Revelation 12, 7 to 12, where, where there's this war in heaven. And the, the dragon is then, Satan is cast out of heaven. He's no longer allowed even to come and have access before God. He rebelled long ago, but he's still been given access. And he brings his accusations against you with him. And yet, something changes halfway through the tribulation point, and what, what happens is what we're going to talk about today, that causes God to revoke his visa, okay? He's no longer allowed even to visit any longer. And, 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 and God from the throne says to Michael, the archangel, please escort him from the building. And so Michael does. That's my version of the war in heaven, Okay? So the war in heaven happens midway point. We'll talk about why in this chapter, and then you have the the raging of the antichrist in the second half of the tribulation, knowing that his time is short. And we're going to talk more about that today. So these are just explanations that are occurring through this second half of the tribulation period. Again, before we get to the end, where we now pick up those, where we will again pick up those bull judgments and then get to the return of Jesus, his kingdom, the end of the chart. So I give you that just to have a a picture that you can refer back to along the way. I put in the bulletin so that then you would save the bulletin because the bulletin on the inside has the list of the BP Academy classes that you don't want to miss. Wasn't that clever of me? All right, so in Revelation chapter 13 then, we're going to, I, I made a couple of promises. We're going to explain things that are going on in the second half of the tribulation period. We're going to talk about government. There's going to be this, this very strong, very effective, very capable, it seems, government at that time that people will put their trust in. And uh, we're going to see some things about what it is. How 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 does that how did that relate to John and his audience? How did that relate to us even today? So let's get into chapter thirteen. There's a first beast. There's a strange quotation, and then there's a second beast. But all of this together is really about two things. How can you know who to trust? Where should your trust be when the bottom falls out and chaos breaks loose? What can you really trust in? And trust is going to be directed by what you believe to be true, so how can you know what is true? There will be a lot said then that is not true. There's a lot said now that is not true. How can you know what is true? We'll talk about that a little bit today. So Revelation chapter 13, think of it as being about trust and truth. Now with that in mind, let's read chapter 13 of the book of the Revelation. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal or deadly wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here, this is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of, this, of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded, the first beast, and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So there's a lot of questions you might be wondering about these, these, this last empire and who will the Antichrist be and what exactly does that number mean? Well, I probably will not answer all of your questions this morning, but I do want to give you an overall framework of this chapter and something that relates to today from the chapter. What John is doing is John has been given by God a vision of the future and a future governmental entity that helps the church, those churches that he's writing to, it helps them to understand how will they relate to government in society when it is contrary to their faith. And thus by this passage helping those first century churches late in the first century understand how do they relate when there is a government and society which is wholeheartedly now contrary and against their faith, how they relate to that. How do we relate to that? And what encouragement is there for us as well? That's what we're looking for out of this chapter. So let's dive in and see, and see what we've got. First of all, there is this beast. You got that much, right? There's a terrible beast. It's a great beast. And it reminds us of beasts we've heard about before if we've read in the book of Daniel. Daniel is given a vision describing the kingdoms of the earth in a series of beasts that culminate in this beast. And those symbols relate to Babylon as a lion, to to Persia as a somewhat lopsided bear in Daniel chapter 7, and as Greece as a leopard with wings and four heads, you thought a oh, one-headed leopard with wings would be bad enough. This leopard has four, four times the teeth. Okay. Now, and then there's this there's this um, great beast with with seven heads and 10 horns and we've 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 come across the 10 horns and the beast in Daniel before in fact before I go too far I should go back to Daniel chapter 7 pick up a couple of verses there just to set it in context so you know I'm not, I'm not making that up search the scripture see that these things are so Daniel gets a vision early in the chapter and in that in that vision Daniel 7 verse 3 four great beasts come out of the sea sound familiar Different from one another. The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings, and then its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up and made to stand on two feet like a man. And behold, there was another beast, verse 5, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side, the lopsided bear. Verse 6, there was another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and this beast had four heads. After this, I saw in the night visions a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. And and it had ten horns. Verse eight I considered the horns, behold, another one came up among them, a, a little horn, which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And that that vision is interpreted at the end of Daniel chapter seven, and we find that that, that last leader, that last horn on this final beast, he, he says blasphemous things against the Most High, and he wars against the saints, but his kingdom does not last. It's only given for him to rule for a time, times, and half a time. There's that three and a half again and the court will sit in judgment, his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end, and Daniel seven twenty seven, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So there will be this terrible beast, and he will say terrible things, and yet his end will come, in fact, right on schedule, forty two months, three and a half years His dominion will be taken away. That's in Daniel's promise. And that promise is reminded of in this vision of this last beast, which is that beast. He's like a leopard. He's like a bear. He's like a lion. We're reminded of Daniel 7. And it has seven heads. We've seen seven heads before. The dragon, the red dragon who is Satan, has seven heads. I take it as seven manifestations, seven empires through whom Satan has exercised his authority as the prince of this world. There, have been, there, there are seven empires that the Bible seems to give attention to as they relate to Israel. Why Israel? Remember Satan. Seeking to destroy God's promise concerning this people he has chosen from Abraham forward through whom his blessing, through his Savior, is going to come to all the world. And Satan's intention is to mess that up. He seeks to destroy the child He would love to destroy the people through whom the promised child is going to come. If he fails in destroying the people or the child, he seeks afterwards to still destroy that people even to this day so that he can prevent God's promise of restoration of that people in belief in their Messiah. So that's the bigger picture that chapter 12 reminded us of. Well, who are those seven empires? Just for fun. Let's let's check history together. The first world empire that we care about in the Bible, i mean, there, 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 there are others in the mix, but the first one we care about in the Bible is Egypt. And Israel lives in Egypt. And a new pharaoh arose who decides he, he needs to get rid of the Israelites. There's political background I won't go into. But he decides that all male children of the Israelites will be killed. And by doing so, will eliminate Israel as a people. He does not succeed. You remember Moses? That's how Moses winds up in the river, and he's taken out of the river. Well, you know the rest of the story from there. After Egypt comes Assyria, and Assyria has a different model. They are going to take over everything, and when they take over a place, they eliminate the people by intermixing them with everybody else. Assyria's model was to put all the different nations into a blender and turn it on. They were that brutal... But they were that thorough in intermingling the peoples as well. So that instead of Israelites in the north of Israel, after Assyria, you had Samaritans. You had a mixed people who were not only mixed in their ethnic background, but they were mixed in their religious practice. Such that when Ezra and Nehemiah come along, they don't consider them Israelites at all. They have no part with them in the building of the temple. Their loyalties and their faith lie elsewhere. After Assyria, you have Babylon. And Babylon has a different approach. Babylon takes over Assyria. Babylon is the new bully on the block. And Babylon comes to Jerusalem. And Babylon's approach through Nebuchadnezzar is instead of eliminating other peoples as a people, they intend to bring them into Babylon and to make them Babylonian. And so they're going to make Israelites pagans, and they try it with Daniel and his three friends, as you remember in the book of Daniel. After Babylon, seeking to ruin the promise by converting all of Israelites into idolaters, now Persia comes along. And Persia seems friendly. Cyrus is great. Cyrus sends them back to rebuild the temple so that they can pray for him. Well, Cyrus does that with lots of other peoples as well. He wants as many prayers as he can get from whoever. Cyrus is almost the founder of that whole notion of here's an idol to the unknown God. We don't want to forget one. So Cyrus seems good, but it's out of Persia. Tucked away in the book of Esther of all places is the story of Haman, who if Haman's plot succeeds... Every Israelite all across the known world, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, every Israelite will be killed on one night. And Haman's plot almost succeeds. And the and the and the people through whom God's promise are almost eliminated. That's the book of Esther. That's, a, that's worth a read. After, after Persia comes Greece and Alexander as well. He's pretty, he's pretty chill. He's pretty friendly with Jerusalem. But he dies very young. He conquers the world and then he dies. We're done here. And, and when he dies, his kingdom is divided. His empire is divided into four. And one of those is, a, is, 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 is known as Syria or the Antiochans because it's based up, up in, in, in the north of Israel in, in what's modern day Turkey. And out of that line of kings, which is described in the book of Daniel, there is one called Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the Manifestation, Antiochus the Fourth. And Antiochus loves Zeus. In fact, Antiochus loves Zeus so much he thinks he's Zeus. He thinks he is Zeus, the Greek god personified, manifest, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he's trying to take over Egypt, and yet he's not able to. And, and, and then Rome butts in and won't, help, and won't allow it. And he takes his anger out on Israel. And he sets up a statue of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem. A statue that looks remarkably like Antiochus, by the way. And he demands that everybody worship that statue. And Jesus calls that the abomination of desolation. Quoting Daniel, who refers that this is going to happen, but it's only a prefigure of what will happen in the end. Because Antiochus is the first to do that, but Antiochus is not the last. He was given to us to show what this is going to look like. And Jesus would point back to that and say, that's what's going to happen in the last day. And John writes about it here in chapter 13. An image is established and life is even given to the image. You know how all through idolatry is ridiculed because this this is dead stone or dead wood that cannot talk or hear? But what if that dead idol is given life? That's what's going to happen. And Paul talks something about that in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2. Paul talks about the the day of the Lord coming when the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who in verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians 2, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship so that he, here it is, takes his seat in the temple Of God, proclaiming Himself to be God. That's Paul's singular mark. Of this is how you know when the day of the Lord is coming. This is how you know when the end is coming. When this happens, if that hasn't happened yet, we're not there yet. Relax, it's just a bad day. Okay, so now we get back to Revelation chapter eleven. You have these empires that the dragon and I mentioned. Oh, the the last one I, I didn't get to Rome. Okay, so Rome comes along. In Rome, does Rome make any moves to try to get rid of Messiah? Oh, Herod's client king tries to take him out at his birth, just like the dragon wanted. When that doesn't succeed, Pontius Pilate is used by the, by the dragon to get rid of Messiah in his death. And that doesn't work either, aren't you glad? Jesus is risen from the dead, and he ascends to the throne in heaven where Satan would imagine himself sitting. And he hates it, and he's infuriated, so he continues in wrath against God's people. All right, so you have this this last empire. I mentioned six. Getting to Rome gives us six. There's seven heads to the beast because there's one more like that coming. One more empire. Think of another. I don't know that it encompasses every nation in the world. There's other things happening in the end times in prophecy and in the book of Revelation. But there is a large empire that holds sway over the earth. That That is represented by this seventh beast. Which John sees arising. And the whole earth, it says in verse 3. The whole earth followed it. In verse 4. They love this thing. They love this. Finally, here is some power. Finally, here's some authority. Here's some strength. Here's something that can bring order out of the chaos. And the world rallies around it. This, this, this one, this empire and its leader, this one could be our Savior. Now, this seems kind of hard to believe at the present, even the way the nations not only rage against the Lord, but they rage against each other, right? How would you get that kind of unanimity? How would you get that kind of agreement rallying around a particular leader in another almost worldwide empire that the whole earth follows him? In verse 8, there is widespread worship of the beast. The beast now is personified not only in the empire, but just like Nebuchadnezzar, and cyrus and alexander the empire is manifest in a person as well antiochus becomes that greece beast okay he's one of the heads of the four-headed leopard all right so you have this antichrist figure this world ruler who arises takes the place of some of those other 10 according to daniel well how could this happen really How would they buy into this? And all these blasphemous things he said. He denies, he derides, he despises the God of heaven. He despises the notion of a creator God. I imagine him saying something like this. Who cares about the God of heaven? We've got to preserve planet earth. I think in that day, much of the world who have rejected God and his Christ Much of the world is going to see these events, these otherworldly events that are falling upon planet Earth, as God shakes the planet and says, this is your last chance. They're going to see that as the threat of an alien invasion. Pick your favorite science fiction movie where aliens are coming to destroy, attack and destroy planet Earth, and everybody's going to die, and the world rallies together in a new sense of human brotherhood because we are all in this together. We live or die together, and so we're all together standing against this alien force that is coming. Imagine if the average person sees the return of Jesus through that kind of lens. Why wouldn't they? To them, they are the owners of the planet and he is the alien invader. We don't want this man to rule over us. The nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, so there is this opposition. This beast makes war on the saints, but he only has 42 months. He has limited time and he's angry because he knows that his time is short. The the enemy gives authority to this beast, to this ruler. That's interesting. He gives authority to him. He's the prince of the earth and as he gave authority to other empires in the past, he gives authority to this one. Think about it for a minute. What was it that Satan offered Jesus? All of these kingdoms of the earth I will give to you if only you will worship me. What was Satan offering in Luke chapter 4? He put a firm offer on the table. Satan was willing to make Jesus his Antichrist. Wow. That's a pretty bold move, isn't it? I mean, talk about going all in. But Jesus was not interested in a 42-month assignment, you see. Jesus was far more interested in eternal life with you forever. Aren't you glad? He chose you instead of Satan's empty promise, which can only last for 42 months. So he makes war on the saints and those who don't worship and fearfully admire him. Can this really happen? Would the world so rally around such a one? If they're scared enough, yes. Look back in the last couple of years. There was a pandemic. There was a new virus And people were dying. By the hundreds, by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, people were dying. If you got this virus, you would surely die. It was in all the papers. Everybody said so. And it looked like that. Fear filled the earth, and people rallied together, and there were decisions made, and individual rights and freedoms, and nations gave up. There were were changes, whole-scale changes across the globe that we've never seen anything like it in modern history. It happened very quickly. It happened very suddenly because out of fear of death, people will do almost anything, and they expected, we don't care about anything else right now. We want our governments to save us. Did you get that? That's an important lesson to learn. Was the, I, 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 I've had people ask me along the way, is the vaccine the mark of the beast? No, 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 no. No, it is not. Does this whole movement help to prepare a mindset among humanity for such an hour of Antichrist? Absolutely. There's the conditioning there. Scare you enough. And you'll give in to almost anything. How did they overcome? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their own lives even unto death. What can you do to me, really? I have eternal life in God's Son, Jesus. You can't touch me. I will, as I will not. As Jesus said, I will not fear him who can kill the body only. I need not. Because all that does is usher me into the presence of the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And that just gives me that quicker of a start on eternity. And folks, I tell you, I'm eager for that. And some of the stuff of life, some of the pain of it, doesn't it make you eager for that? Don't you long for God's future in the midst of the present? That doesn't mean we despair of the present. That doesn't mean we withdraw. That doesn't mean we pull up the, pull up the uh, drawbridge and fill the moats and protect ourselves and isolate. No, that doesn't mean that at all. But we live in the present with our eyes on eternity rather than the present. We let what we know to be true forever inform us as to how we will live in the present. So, some trust in chariots. Some trust in Pentagon or police or public health officials. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. I think John's message to those first century churches out of this vision, God's message through John to those churches then and now is Do not fear government oppression. Do not trust in government power. But fear and trust in the Lord. No earthly government is your master. And no earthly government, folks, is your savior. What I jokingly tell the kids, I have to remind myself When I start getting tense, bothered, concerned, uptight about politics, it's because I really expected it to be different. And why would I? Why would I expect it to be different? The picture Scripture paints is it's going to be bad. It's going to get worse. We haven't seen anything yet. And we have seen a propensity for humanity in fear to be willing to give up a lot if only the government could save us. And I take that not as an indictment against everybody. Outside of faith in the Lord, what else do you have? Some will trust in chariots. Some will trust in Pentagon or police or public health officials. But you and I, we will not disparage any of that we, in fact, are grateful for all of that to the extent that it is in a godly manner. But our trust is in the Lord our God and we can expect because of the, of the nature of human depravity Because of the fallenness of humanity, that we are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior, we will expect that any of those public entities that we would put our trust and confidence in will be twisted, will be corrupted. They will let us down. Our Savior will not. And He is coming. There's the promise. And that weird section, that weird quotation in the middle of the book that says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is slain with a sword, with the sword he must be slain. If that's your calling, that's what's going to happen. Here's a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Aren't you encouraged? Didn't that help you this morning? Aren't you saying, oh, I'm glad I heard that. Boy, if I'm, if I'm destined to be captive, well, that's where I'm going. I'm going into captivity. If, If anyone is to be slain, well, the sword, he must be slain. Wow. Folks, that's not talking about you. It's a quotation out of Jeremiah chapter 15. And it was a reminder by Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Isaiah comes just before Jeremiah. Isaiah is the warning prophet saying, Israel, Judah, turn before it's too late. Return to your God. Before it is too late. Jeremiah is saying, time is up. It is too late. This is what's going to happen. Now you need to return to faith in your God so that you can have something to hold on to and believe in through the captivity that is coming. Jeremiah's words are, in fact, in Jeremiah 15, verse 1, God says, Even if Moses and Samuel would have pitched up and plead for these people, I would no longer listen. No, they are going into the captivity that they themselves have chosen. If if they're going to die from pestilence, they're going to die. Those who are going to be killed by the sword, they're going to be killed by the sword. Those who are going to be carried away into captivity, they're going to be carried away in captivity. It's done. It's going to happen. And now God is saying, what was true for Israel going into Babylon is also true in forty-two months. God's judgment is sure. God's judgment is coming. What God has said he is going to do. What he has decreed will come to pass. Who can fight against the beast? I can think of one. And he will. So no matter how dark it seems, even then, know this, believer in Jesus, your Lord is at hand. His coming is soon. So if that's true at the darkest point that will ever occur in human history, according to Jesus, how much more true is it today? I don't know the circumstances. I don't know the situation. I don't know who's going to win what election, and it doesn't matter ultimately. What matters is that our God and our Savior is coming, and we will live today to serve him. We'll participate in the society around us. We'll participate as citizens in the voting process, trying to be salt and light in the midst of this world, but we don't look for the answer to come from there. We look to our God. And our trust is in him. Who will we trust? We will trust in the Lord our God. His word is sure. And that's how you can know what to believe. Let me cut to the chase because our time is gone. As we get into this, this second beast, there's a beast and then there's another beast. And the other beast is a little different. He's got two horns like a lamb. Kind of sounds Jesus, Jesus-ish. He, he, he's able to do signs and wonders to, to back up his message. He even calls down fire from heaven. That sounds like Elijah again. We've already had that described in the book of the Revelation by God's two witnesses. So the Antichrist has got his witness as well. He's got his, who will be identified in later chapters as the false prophet. So there's a bit of an unholy trinity here. There's there's Satan, there's the Antichrist, and there's his false prophet who does miraculous wonders to back up his words. And Jesus warned Looking down the corridor of time, Jesus warned against false signs and lying wonders that the Antichrist would come with. And do not believe it, he said. Now, we're not yet in that day. And yet, we are in a day, even in the church, where sometimes emphasis can be placed among Christians. And I know something is true because I heard about this miracle. Maybe I even saw what I'm convinced was a miraculous thing that happened so I know that the, all the stuff that they're saying is true because of what I saw or the miracle that I heard about. I do believe that our God does miracles today. I pray for them. I ask God to intervene in a dramatic way in the midst of somebody's cancer, that they would know it, that they would know that God has done this, that the doctors would have no explanation. They would know that God has done this, that God has intervened and miraculously healed them when there was no apparent medical hope. I pray that way. I do believe, I've i seen God answer some of those. I've seen people, I've known of people who were diagnosed with cancer that was terminal within months and it was gone and the man is still alive today, years later. And yet, because there was a miracle, does not make something true. There will be false signs, lying wonders. So we are not carried away by miraculous things that we see. Our trust is in the Lord and our confidence is in his word. We know what truth to believe based on what God has said. Now can I put in a plug for BP Academy? That's why we do this. Not just come once a week and hear, hear, hear something from me, but to be equipped yourself by good teachers that you can dig further into God's Word for yourself, that you have a bigger picture, that when you read it, it makes sense, that lights come on, things fall into places. We want you to understand God's Word for yourself, to not be dependent on somebody else, to understand what is here, because we want your faith and confidence to never be in one of our teachings. We want your faith and your confidence to be in God and His Word, as Paul said himself. As he as he said farewell to his to a church he loved at Ephesus, he said, "Now I commit you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified." That's what I want for. That's, that's what I want for us. I want these saints to be equipped in God's Word and God's truth for the ministry God has given us and that your faith and confidence will be all the more in Him and by that, in your life, He will be glorified. There's going to be a threat at the end. There's going to be this push that the mark of the beast is, is, is on somebody's right hand or their forehead. We've already seen that. We've seen God put his own name and the name of the Lamb on the forehead of those that he had redeemed. We have seen that God set his seal upon them. We saw in Ephesians chapter 1 that God, by his Holy Spirit, has set his seal upon you. In fact, when the priests of Aaron prayed a blessing over the people of God, God gave them words to say, And he said, by doing this, you put my name upon them. I'm not worried about a mark of the beast because God has set his own name on me in Jesus. How about you? If our confidence is in our God and our Savior, we need not fear nor overly trust the powers that be in the present because the present is limited but Jesus is coming let's pray Father we are in the midst of troubles we live in an uncertain time there is seemingly chaos around us and it will drive us at times it will push us or press us to do silly things to trust in what we should not to look for hope where there is none to look to those to save us who cannot. Father, would you remind us, even like the children, when we see election signs round about us, Father, remind us, yes, to participate in our culture in the present, to seek to be salt in life, to seek to make choices that will be best for the community around us. But Lord, to temper that involvement with the realization that our hope is not in these efforts, but our hope is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the redeemer of heaven and earth, and that your own redemption of us and how you work within us as your children today, that this would be our reminder. The promise of your word would be our sure guarantee of how you will also work in the future. And Lord, we long for that day. And Lord, let that day inform how we then live in this day and what we will not fear nor trust in. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.